This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we walk through one century of history that had an unbelievable amount of change and progress. Even outside of church history, this evolving world was fertile soil for the Reformation. Absolutely. And this is, like we said, just one century worth of discussion today. And yet, we'll end up having two slides for you, two um, timeline slides for you. We're picking up the back end of one and the very beginning of the next. Talking 1550 to 1650. So a little weird chunk, but uh, when I originally broke up my material, this was the chunk I wanted. There was just so much stuff that happened in this 100 years that I wanted to talk about. So you do have some visuals. You do have some pictures. Find, find and this those, stuff so. does kind of bleed together a little bit, depending on what part of the world you're talking about or whatever. Yeah. Like We talked about some of the stuff that applies to this period of history on our last episode, and I'm sure we'll have some cross conversation in future episodes as well. So, you know, yeah, it's really hard to break this stuff up on fuzzy, fuzzy boundaries. Reality does not fit into nice, clean categories with breaks like we want it to, especially like we want it to the two of us specifically. <laughs> All right, let's see here. When we, uh, when I first studied church history, uh, the reformation, that period of like the, the Reformation, that is church history, right? Like when you think church history, the Reformation, for anybody who's Protestant, like that's it. There was no church before that, effectively. <laughs> I mean, that, that period of history was taught as an unbelievable time of change. And for obvious reasons, this period of history uh, was seen as the hinge point for the modern era. Like that's where the world really started moving towards the era that we know as modernity and, and the modern the modern era. It was one of the major peaks of the history of Christendom. Uh, I was just like, it was the Reformation. Like it was the all-star moment of church history. And I know it feels like I'm setting up a but statement, <laughs> but I actually agree with those statements. And I've come to see... Uh, that those statements that were made, those implications when I was learning church history, um, I've even come to see those truths from a, a bigger and a wider angle than what I believe was even being taught to me. Originally, uh, I, w- I, I picked up this period of church history. Um, uh, I, it was taught to me through the light of pro- the, the progression of Protestant Christian development. Like, And we're, I mentioned this before in an earlier episode, we're definitely following a particular track through Christian history. At this point, we're going to follow the Protestant Reformation, uh, Protestantism. We're going to start to follow that track, and we're not going to follow the history of Catholicism. I know we have some Catholic listeners, and that's not done to slight anybody. It's just because I'm not as familiar with those periods of history. So you need to put together your own podcast and take us through your little wave of church history, if you will. Um, but that's that was Reformation was definitely taught to me through that lens of Protestant Christian thought development. But this development, this Christian Protestant Christian development, did not just happen in a vacuum. In fact, this period of Christendom was accompanied by an unbelievably tumultuous time of cultural change that immediately followed it. Without the Reformation, I don't believe Christianity would have survived the 200 years after it. So I'm going to say that again. Without the Reformation... I don't believe Christianity would have survived the 200 years that came after it. Uh, And that statement has very little to do with what most of us would call theology or church ecclesiology. Ecclesiology. Brent, what does that word mean? I was just going to ask you. (laughs) 
<laughs> I figured you were. Yeah, ecclesiology. That is like uh, the study of the church. Uh, if theology is the study of God, theos, uh, ecclesia, ecclesia, ecclesiology is the study of, of the church. So when I talk about like the Reformation, like the Reformation, the Reformation didn't happen in a vacuum. This whole period of time, the church would not have survived what was going to happen in the world for the next 200 years had they not gone through the Reformation. And I'm not necessarily talking about the theology or just what happened in the church. I'm talking about something much bigger than that. So even as I say that, I wonder if we can even separate those two worlds, uh, like like church history and non-church history. Can you even talk about church history and secular history at this point in the conversation? I don't know. But it is incredibly difficult to imagine a pre-French Revolution world. We live in a very uh, post-French Revolution world. And if you're like, what does the French Revolution have to do with it? We haven't talked about that yet. That's coming up in the next episode or so. So we'll get there. We'll get there next. But it's hard for us to imagine a world um, in, in which there's no separation in thought between church and state. And you referenced that in your quote, I think, an episode ago, an episode or two maybe ago, Brent, when you quoted out of your... Uh, our, our Bruce Shelley text, um, uh, that that distinction between church and state. Like without that distinction between church and state, but without a distinction between faith and science at this point, between poetry and pragmatism, that's just a part of who, that's a part of our consciousness. It is really hard for us to be able to step outside of our own awareness and consciousness of how we experience the world and try to imagine a world in any other kind of space. So I suppose one might be able to make the case, um, as in like the James Hannum book that we mentioned in an earlier episode, somebody could make the case that the Reformation actually led to and or catalyzed um, what we refer to as the Age of Enlightenment. Like in a lot of ways, this whole period of history catalyzed what we would refer to as the Age of Enlightenment. So uh, to kind of walk through this, in the late 16th century, uh, we, were, we were handed two people in history who had a super uh, large impact on Christianity. John Knox is known as the man who founded the Presbyterian Church. It's a pretty big, pretty big part of the Christian stream of Protestantism, Presbyterians. I grew up in a Reformed tradition, so I'm very familiar with the Presbyterians. Um, John Knox happened to be uh, Presbyterianism, should I say, happened to be the flavor of Reformation in Scotland. I think we talked about before, Brent. How did the how did the Reformation work in different countries in Europe? Like, uh, did you have um, like multiple churches to choose from, like Reformation wise, or how did that work? Uh, not exactly. Earlier on, it was it was kind of limited to what nation you were a part of. Right. If, if you were German, you were probably what Lutheran. Exactly. Perfect. And that was the case here with Presbyterians. Um, if you were a Protestant. And you were in Scotland, you were more than likely a Presbyterian. Uh, that that worldview was uh, seemingly overthrowing the presence of Catholicism and even Anglicanism. There, uh, Presbyterian was on the Presbyterianism was on the rise. So while those from a Presbyterian background would probably appreciate a much larger treatment of Knox's contributions. I would a be totally ill-equipped to do that, and b um, it. it, it if I were to talk about it, I would simplify it into the style of government the Presbyterian Church is named after. 
Unlike other movements in the Protestant era, Knox brought an approach to church polity and governments known as the Presbytery. The Presbytery. I was raised on the the wisdom and the beauty of the Presbytery, my church leadership taught me. A group of representatives, this Presbytery is a group of representatives who would lead the church as a governing body rather than a hierarchy of papacy, priesthood, or any of those kind of ideas. Instead of a hierarchy of kind of working your way down the pyramid, you have a Presbytery, a group of representatives, and this whole idea really came from Knox and his, John Knox and his understanding of the world and what he contributed to the conversation. So in reference to all that idea we just talked about there, it's hard to quantify the effect of this, uh, the effect that this whole idea would have on the thinking that would eventually lead to a political style of governance based on democratic, like in our world of a democratic republic, like the work of John Knox. Like I always, I think when I thought of John Knox, did you, can you remember studying John Knox when you went through school, Brent? No. Oh, man. I could, and it could just be a, a horrible memory of mine, but John Knox was taught was taught to me in public school growing up as much more of a political figure. So when I started learning about him in reference of church history, I was like totally confused. But but kind of to learn the whole context made complete sense. I recently kind of uh, ran across some information on Mary, Queen of Scots, who was uh, the the monarch figure during this period of history, but I haven't really studied much on, about Knox himself. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. And, and he just had a huge effect on what we would know as parts of the system of our government today. I, I guess maybe I should point out, if if you're unfamiliar with the period of history, the United Kingdom does not exist at this point. England is separate from Scotland. Sure. Right. And, and they have a lot of uh, conflicts going on here. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a good, that's good context. So while many of these ideas that we're talking about are based on Roman systems of government, like like when we think about the government of America and the, the principles that we base them upon, we're definitely based on like Roman systems of governance, going all the way back to Caesar and that whole system. But the impact of John Knox on the application of that representative leadership is undeniable, obviously driving a lot of uh, like the whole democratic thought and the Democratic Party and those kind of things based on a lot of his ideas. The Roman Senate was not representative of the people the way uh, the U.S. Senate is representative. Correct. Absolutely. It's been shaped by some of these ideals to be, it's based on some of the same ideas and yet applied very differently in some ways. So another name in the mix uh, during the Age of Enlightenment, it's one of my favorite characters in this conversation, Nicolaus Copernicus. Nicolaus Copernicus. Good old Copernicus. He had this crazy idea, a crazy idea, that our universe was not revolving around the earth. He proposed the idea of a universe revolving around the sun. Using his expertise in science and mathematics, Copernicus was just trying to be honest about the things that he was discovering. Now, again, I want to remind everybody, I am not a scientist nor a true historian, and I am way out of my league. And yet, here we go. <laughs> And while most of us read this portion of history with a smirk, thinking about Copernicus and how he was so right and the world around him thought he was so crazy, we often fail to realize in this same conversation the impact that this had on the world of theology. I never appreciated until I studied this, uh, the impact that Copernicus had on theology. In this period of history, the church's theology rested on a geocentric understanding of the universe, a geocentric understanding of the universe. And you know, Brent, I think there's a Wikipedia article on this. 
And I, I really like the, the picture that's on that. So let's link the Wikipedia article because I love the visuals that the article has to help people understand the implications of this whole discussion theologically. And in fact, if you, you go to that Wikipedia article, the picture that sits there actually shows you a visual representation of that model. And so when you look at that photo there, that picture, it shows you how their understanding of science was completely linked to their understanding of theology. Um, and, and it's just a great visual here. So let me not get too far away from my notes. Using the idea that the earth is the center of the universe, the theology of the heavens, quote unquote, the heavens, was such that differing levels of the heavens and ultimately God's dwelling place could be found at the further levels of these concentric circles of universal existence. While most of us would see this as a simple scientific adjustment and part of the learning process, the church in this day did not the prominent belief was that the proposal of Copernicus and what we call heliocentrism, I think there might be a Wikipedia article for that, heliocentrism, that's versus and against geocentrism, the idea that the earth is the center. Now we have heliocentrism, which is what our understanding is in basically today on some basic level. The proposal of Copernicus and his heliocentric ideas in the theological mind, was threatening the very existence of God himself. His teaching was deemed by many to be heretical and an attack on the teachings of the church. How dare Copernicus teach something through the realm of science that contradicted what we understood in the world of theology? So I just want to pause here as a side note. I hope our listeners are realizing the relevance of this conversation to our own century of church history. I'm getting ahead of myself, but it's worth a pause right now. We need to be catching this. It's a world where new scientific understandings, the world we live in today, it's a world where new scientific understandings threaten our understanding of theology and the Bible. Instead of jumping, jumping to hasty conclusions we may want to take a lesson from this chapter of history because, spoiler alert, Copernicus was right. (laughs) If we don't learn from these lessons of history, the next few centuries may not look back on our day with much kindness, but might see us as incredibly foolish, just as we do the 16th century. But I digress. We will cross that bridge in time when we get to that conversation. But I hope if we just pause here now, Brent, if we were to go all the way back, I still today uh, deal with uh, emails from people just getting into it. You remember session one, Brent? You remember all the way back in session one? Barely. <laughs> 2016. And we're like very intentionally and very gently trying to suggest that there's more going on in Genesis that it's not a scientific lab report, that maybe there are chiasms and larger points to the story. We're trying to give us some breathing room and some elbow room so that we could read our science textbook on one half of our desk and our Bible on the other and not feel like they're in competition. And all the emails that you get when people start to go through that journey, they're like, well, wait a minute. Are you saying that Noah happened or it didn't happen? And just 
hopefully now we can look back on that time and that awkward phase and understand why that was so important. And hopefully we handled that well. Hopefully we were gentle and just kind of brought you along for the ride because this is why right now, right now we're looking at in church history, this is why it's so important that we went on that journey together. Because if we don't do that, we make some really critical mistakes with theology. So it's probably not a shocker to most of our listeners. Uh, Science will not backtrack and affirm the status quo of the church. Quite the opposite. In fact, Galileo is one scientific giant who would champion the cause of Copernicus and through his use of telescopes and other kind of mathematics, of which I am not an expert, Galileo would prove, in many ways, not just one, the validity of a heliocentric universe. While this incredibly uncomfortable growth in the church took more than a century, it happened nonetheless. The church was not going to stop us discovering and learning all about new truth. Shocker, believe it or not. So what ended up happening? Well, the church accepted albeit quietly and very politically and shuffling the cards, but they accepted that their thinking was flawed. They made adjustments, the church did. The church as a whole made adjustments to their theology, albeit not gracefully, (laughs) and the church moved on. That's how church history works. There's one more thinker I want to talk about before we're done here today. His name is Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal, a Christian philosopher who helped make some radical advances in science and mathematics. In a lot of ways, Pascal would set the stage for what we understand as Newtonian physics. And through the work of men like this, because you're like, well, what does this have to do with church history, Marty? Why do you keep talking about science? Because through the work of men like Newton, like Pascal, the church was able to move, even if it was an awkward movement, through the Age of Enlightenment. This growth curve would not end any time uh, soon in, in their growth curve. It would, ha- it would be this long, grueling, arduous work. The hard work of Christian evolution through this era is only the beginning. In many ways, we are still in the awkward growth phase of this era. And to this day, we continue to have a hard time appreciating the world of faith and science. We often see those two worlds as enemies. We have never truly recovered from the adversarial tone that was struck during the Age of Enlightenment. We have made some huge advances, so we're not still stuck in the same conversation, but we still have this lingering kind of adversarial, science is always out to get faith, understanding of the world. So Pascal, what was he, where is he from? What, what sort of tradition was he a part of at the time? Well, uh, my history could be a tad bit rusty here. So Brent, you can pull up his Wikipedia page. Tell me some, let's give us some summary of who Blaise Pascal is. Tell, tell us who. So it says he's a French mathematician, physicist, inventor, writer, and Catholic theologian. So that was kind of my next question is like, so he's Catholic theologian. Some great points coming up here. And in that one sentence, you actually brought up some great things, Brent. Um, first of all, he's French. Notice how much um, France and French thinking is going to shape the next one to 200 years. It's going to be a huge, I just was never taught this. They're going to be huge thinkers and shapers of this part of history. Um, B, you pointed it out, he's not Protestant. He's actually Catholic. And then when we talk about math and science, and, we, and we're not talking about it in this series, but things like art or music 
Catholicism really owns those things. When I mention, I'm so glad you brought this up, Brent, um, unintentionally, so, so, so wonderful. When I mentioned that the Reformation set the stage for the change in the world and the change in the world combined with the Reformation allowed the church to survive, those things were really interlinked and interlocked. They weren't separate and they played off of each other. Because the Reformation was driving, really pushing against Catholicism in a lot of ways, the whole world was kind of like, I don't know if it's a good metaphor, but going through this awkward stage of like, pubescent church growth. It's like this awkward, we've clung to one kind of Christendom, but now there's this whole age of enlightenment, the, the results of scholasticism. And so they're, this Protestant and Catholic train are kind of moving together. And Catholicism was undoubtedly, no Catholic I don't think would argue with this, was undoubtedly pulled forward because of the challenge, the positive challenge and critique of the Protestant Reformation. So all these, all this thinking is moving forward. Some of them are Protestant thinkers. Some of them are Catholic thinkers. I'm even going to say many of them, most of them, if you study the history of science, forget the church history. If you study the history of, history of science, if you study the history of mathematics, many of those thinkers are going to be Catholic because they had some of the best education, some of the best systems of scholasticism. And while they're being challenged on, a, on two levels, on a theological level, and they're being challenged very much so on, a, on a, an ecclesiological level, everything else in the world is pulling the church conversation forward. And maybe that's even a critical moment in church history because the church used to pull, like prior to this, go, go 400 years back, it felt like the church conversation was pulling history forward. Did you... Did you feel like that when you listened to it, Brent? Like when you when we talked, even in the dark chapters, like the Crusades, it felt like church history was kind of pulling the world forward, right? Yeah, the church was. I mean, it was also mixed up, but the church was kind of uh, even running the the political side of things, right? It was kind of driving the truck, and then scholasticism kind of like through the church somehow shifts into the driver's seat, and 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 this might be an overstatement, but kind of ever since then. The church has been like trailing behind, trying to catch up, being pulled forward by the rest of that conversation. That's probably something to be on some level grieved, mourned, or maybe even just just think critically about. What are the implications when when church starts lagging behind and we're always kind of at war with this driving movement growth of culture? And what was the difference when, for, for better or for worse, the church was out in front driving culture? What was, what was Judaism doing in the first century? What was Israel and Judah doing back in session two? What is it like when, when, when it's switched? And what do we need to do about great discussion fodder for your groups, if you've got groups meeting for this conversation? Do you have any other thoughts there on Blazes you're looking at as? Well, yeah. I mean, I was just, so I didn't realize he was a uh, Catholic um, so that kind of leads into the other thought I had is like how much, uh, on the Protestant side of things, I think France was mostly in the Calvin, um, the Huguenots were the French Calvinists essentially. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't realize that John Calvin was, uh, French, but apparently that's where he's from. Um, and, and we don't really have the concept of 
denominations at this point. Uh, we're sort of starting to separate from the Catholic Church in a few areas, but it's usually like separated by nation. Um, so I'm just wondering, like Pascal, being a Catholic guy in France, how much influence is he having in his time with uh, other other nations, other Protestant denominations, for lack of a better word. Yeah, yeah. and that's a good that's a good question. Uh, and I'm going to state this very loosely and not heavy handedly because I'm just not uh, I'm just not as much of an expert here. My my understandings. It, Cal, part of the reason we don't associate Calvin often with with a France uh, a French. Um, locale or or origin is because he kind of bounced all over the place. Uh, Calvin spent uh, like one of the most well-known portions of his history is in Geneva. Yeah, he was pushed out of France. Exactly. Uh, and that that was actually where I was driving was this idea of Protestantism did not thrive. It, France was not one of the places where it had its easiest go. There are some national geographical locations that were more um, – fertile for the movement of of the Reformation. And I feel like, I mean, even going back to, we talked about the French Pope for those centuries, Avignon, who uh, the schism of the Western Church, uh, there's a real Catholicism stronghold through a very, uh, Protestantism is not, that's going to be a, a challenge for them in France. And I think it's going to be, a, it's going to play a large part leading all the way up to the French Revolution for sure. So it's a great question and a great um, observation to point out. Yep. Something something for further study, certainly. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think that's all we have to offer for this episode. I like it. That's good. If you have any questions, you can go to BayModestopChip.com. You can get in touch with us there. You can find uh, find groups uh, around the world. Get in a group if you're not in one. If you've made it this far and you're not in a group, that's uh, kind of incredible. Um, but yeah, maybe it's time to to find a group and, and start back at the beginning and, and work through it with a community of people. It's a great way to, great way to move forward. Absolutely. A lot of people do that. All right. Well, thanks for joining us on the Bama podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.